everyone. Um, welcome to today's webinar. Today we've got Owen Evans, the CTO of Timely, um, talking all about how to um, lead teams, manage work, um, and all of his experience in some different startups and working remotely and all, all of those kind of things. Um, as you join in, we would love if you could chuck into the chat role where you're tuning in from, um, what, what startup you're in, if, if you're a part of a startup, and also to start having a think on Q&A. Now, we'd love if you could put the questions um, specifically into the um, Q&A chat box, just so that I can differentiate those um, from any general chit chat in the chat box. Um, but yes, please do check in where you're tuning in from and what startup you're a part of, if you're a part of one. Um, otherwise, I'd love to hand over to Owen to um, do a bit of an intro on himself and his background, and then he's got a bit of a presentation as well to, um, to go along. So welcome, Owen. Hey, thank you so much. Hopefully everybody can hear me uh, and uh, see me. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you don't want to see me. That would be awful. Um, thank you so much for inviting me along to, to speak to you all. Um, uh, let's start off with a bit of a caveat. So before I jump into my background, uh, this presentation or this, this talk, uh, what I'll do is I'll go through a little bit of a trip down memory lane in terms of the companies I've worked with, what I've done, uh, but really focusing on some of the stuff that I've experienced, uh, some of the mistakes I've made, some of the things I've seen from a whole bunch of companies that I've been part of. Um, a lot of it will be hopefully uh, uh, cause for you to then go, hey, I'd love to ask some more questions about that or learn some more around it. Uh, and please, as as we said, just put put questions into the, into the chat because I'd actually love to carve out a whole bunch of time at the end just to take questions. Uh, this won't be too long to run through. Um, but I also want to call out that this is massively biased based on my own experience. I don't pretend to be uh, a master of all things. I'm not an oracle, although I, my boss does occasionally joke that I'm Yoda or something for him. Um, but really what I want to be able to say is, hey, this is my experience. Your mileage may vary, but there are some things that I think I believe are truisms for the way that I work uh, and the way that I hire teams and the way that I pull, pull teams together that hopefully uh, will transfer into your business. So, hi, I'm Owen. Uh, I am currently sitting in the SVP of technology, which is the worst title I've ever had uh, seat here at, uh, uh, at Timely uh, and have been here for around about a year. But my history goes back a little bit further than that. Uh, I did have employment in the UK before I came to New Zealand, but I came to New Zealand in 2007 uh, and very quickly fell into uh, a circle with uh, a few friends uh, or, or people I got introduced to, uh, one of those uh, being Craig Walker, who was the CTO at Xero, uh, and, uh, and through that uh, got pulled into a very, very early stage accounting product. Literally, there were around about 20 of us uh, uh, building this product. And you know, of those, maybe five or six or so were, were in the software engineering team, uh, really scrabbling away, trying to make this uh, product work. Uh, and I started off as a senior engineer and then grew up into uh, grew up, uh, grew into the chief architect role uh, as uh, as Craig, who was our CTO, moved to Beachhead in America. We needed technical leadership here in uh, in New Zealand, and I I got uh, nicely asked to uh, to take on that role. But that did lead me to a number of years of hiring, growing that team, building up a whole software development practice within uh, within uh, Zero, and how we actually thought about building teams and, and hiring people into those teams. Really the one thing uh, that I reflect on my time at Zero is that 
when you're growing a team at exponential rates, when you're hiring people constantly, when you literally have no days when you're not looking at some CV somewhere, the actual hiring process becomes very, very autonomous and very, very uh, quick to run. So at a simple level, growth is very, very simple when you're growing. Um, it's, it sounds very stupid, but it's, it's a machine that keeps uh, feeding itself. So you get away with making a huge amount of mistakes. Uh, and I got away with making a terrible amount of mistakes uh, at zero when I was hiring, when I was in, in charge of that process, who I would look for. Uh, and, I, uh, and I reflect uh, zero kind of almost uh, succeeded despite me um, being part of that process. Um, you know, I was very, very uh, naive in the, in the way that I put job ads together, naive in the way that we uh, interviewed people. This is back in, you know, 2008, 2009, asking people to write code on whiteboards and asking them to, uh, to, to really kind of uh, challenge themselves as they sat in uh, a, a very stressful interview with myself and Tokes, uh, who was our, our dev manager at the time. Um, and uh, really what I, what I learned after going through zero was, uh, was that we were a bunch of people who, uh, who were highly autonomous, highly, highly uh, senior, had a lot of context around the business, but we didn't even realize that we were given it, right? Rod was an amazing uh, visionary uh, and, and storyteller. He could tell us what it was we were trying to do at zero. And, and given the fact that we had all this autonomy and, and context, we were actually able to make really good decisions on the ground despite the fact that none of us had any training. None of us really knew what management was. None of us had any of those skills uh, really coached to us, uh, but we managed to succeed anyway. So, so at a core, uh, you can get away with a lot of mistakes if your vision and mission and drive is, and context is, is passed around the team. Uh, and as I say, as you're growing, at an exponential rate, it becomes very, very easy to have the mechanics of how you hire. You know, waking up to a number of uh, a number of applicants for any role, uh, doing interviews every single day, it just becomes a, a second nature. It's a muscle that you keep exercising. You know, when you're when you're in a smaller company and you're not hiring every day, uh, you really have to dive into the process of how you're hiring because you don't remember it every day you don't you know you come back to it in a month how do you onboard new people because they're not starting every single month um you know you have to dive into these processes but when you're when you're growing exponentially it just happens by default which is which is uh, a good side effect i guess um you've, you've obviously got the other side effects of uh, how do you maintain culture how do you grow culture um the biggest the biggest thing that helped us at zero was was rod's vision and uh very much openness around where we're going with the business, what we're trying to do, what the next goals are, literally standing up at all hands and getting nudged by CFOs or, or whoever. And because Rod would tell us something that wasn't particularly public knowledge, um, but you know, he would, he would let us know because that helps us set context and helps us make decisions. And we're incredibly trusted um, on the ground. Uh, move forward to 2013, and I uh, and I left this 500-person organization um, uh, called Zero, and I went back to the beginning. So, joined uh, two fellow co-founders uh, and uh, desperately tried to get a developer tools startup off the ground here in New Zealand. Um, hats off to to JD, uh, you know, over at Raygun because starting around about the same time. Uh, with with Raygun, they had a little bit of background with Mindscape prior to that. 
but it was incredibly hard market to uh, to launch a developmental startup here in New Zealand in 2013. Uh, talking to investors, and most of the questions were, "Hey, are you in accounting? No. Are you in agriculture? No. Um, okay, I don't really know what you do, and I don't really want to give you any money because you've got no metrics to to back this up." Um, Totally understand, you know, uh, you kind of want to invest in what you get. Uh, so as a little bit of context for Hoist, what it was, uh, was, um, uh, uh, um, sorry, low code uh, before low code even existed. So uh, if you think about things like uh, uh, Azure function or uh, AWS Lambda, it was that before those things even existed. And I certainly remember being in San Francisco pitching to uh, to Microsoft and to and to um, and to Amazon AWS around what this was and product managers glazing over, uh, not really understanding what it was. But I now know secretly maybe they were working with a team back in their head office who was building their own uh, vision of this. Um, Hoist was an incredibly uh, uh, fun period of time, three years, four years ish. Uh, of me desperately trying to get this startup off the ground, uh, and I have a lot of uh, a lot of sympathy for everybody who's who's uh, been on that startup journey. And I'm certainly not got a I've not got a success here to to show for you. But what I did learn here, uh, I pulled in uh, two um, two earlier engineers uh, early in their career. So um, really, uh, I had. Um, one uh, great engineer out of uh, Inspiral Dev Academy and one really great engineer who came through summer tech and then uh, so straight out of university. And together they created an, an amazing team that allowed us to build some really complex technology. So, you know, obviously from, from my guidance as a technologist and uh, being able to write code, we were forefront of Docker, we were forefront of some technologies that are now pretty well understood, but at those days really weren't. But the one thing that I really loved about having a team that was built uh, this way was uh, they were complete generalists. So, you know, I didn't hire people who were specialists in a database technology or specialists uh, well, ML didn't really exist there, so I couldn't really hire a machine learning person because A, those roles didn't exist back in those days, uh, but also uh, the, the specialists weren't what, what I was looking for. You, what you want to hire for uh, in, a, in that early stage is, and this is like reflecting back on who we were at zero, the people who were the 20 on the ground, we're all very much generalists. Getting into any problem that was, that was uh, in front of us, solving those problems, uh, with the high context of a business, uh, uh, making core decisions on the ground. But none of us were hired because we had the deepest knowledge in, uh, I don't know, React or uh, in, in the, the flavor of C-sharp that we were using at zero. And again, here at Hoist, I hired two people who, uh, A, they were at the beginning of their career, so they hadn't actually built up those specialisms, but they actually worked really well um, generally across the stack. And if, I'm, if you're talking about junior engineering hiring, uh, I learned here that it's really good to hire somebody who's converted career and, some, and gone through a boot camp and put them alongside somebody who's come through a comp, comp sci uh, degree because they'll go differently. <laughs> like the, when they want to debug solutions or solve problems, they will solve problems in very, very different ways. I like to think of it as 
uh, you know, somebody out of EDA is a very, very eye-shaped person. You know, they go deep on one technology and they know how Ruby on Rails works or something, but they don't necessarily have all of the background that gives them, you know, how how does a computer work? You know, how does how does the CPU work? Um, whereas a comp sci person is very, very broad but has no deep knowledge on any particular technology uh, uh, to to debug those things. So my advice is like. Uh, as zero grew to 500, we definitely had moments where we really needed specialists. But when you're an early stage startup, you're bouncing around, you're trying to find that focus, you're trying to find that, that product market fit. So having specialists kind of ties you into a technology or a technology decision or a team that forces you down one road. You know, the, the, the classic phrase is, you know, like if you've only got a hammer in your toolbox, everything looks like a nail. You really, really want generalists who can solve lots of different types of problems. And don't get me wrong, they might solve them in the least effective or efficient way from a technology point of view, but from a business point of view, you're, 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 you're focused on time, right? Like we had three years worth of funding in order to, uh, you know, we've managed to raise some funding and we put our own personal capital in, which kept us going for three years. Um, but we had three years to prove not the technology, but to prove that there was product market fit here, right? Like that people would actually start buying it. The technology really didn't matter. So uh, we needed to solve problems. Obviously we needed to have a, a product to sell, um, but we could have built it in any technology that we needed as long as it solved the problems in the way that the customers would understand. So it was really a focus on product market fit. So really focus on people who are generalists to start is my one learning out of hoist. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's loads of other things. Uh, don't try and do a developer tool startup in 2013. Um, from there, uh, our last ditch for, for, uh, for hoist was to try and sell it. Uh, we tried to sell it to an internal company here in New Zealand. Um, they, they were about to sign on the dotted line, I believe, um, but they uh, went through a restructure. So that kind of became a, uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, sorry, uh, we're now down to like the last five dollars, and we really can't pay payroll. So it's time to uh, to close up shop. Uh, although Hoist still exists, so I should should mention that you know on it, uh, it's an it's still a going concern. Uh, my co-founder Andrew Butel uh, runs Endgame, uh, and they run uh, Hoist as part of their offering. Uh, there at Endgame. So it's it still exists. It's still got a lot of love. Uh, you know, Herbert, who's the, the name of the robot, is still, I've still got stickers of Herbert around that I like to put on stuff. Um, but sorry, that was a complete digression. Uh, from, uh, from my experience of uh, Hoist, uh, I jumped in back in with, uh, with Tokes, who I mentioned I worked alongside uh, at, uh, at Zero. If anybody's looking for a really core cool product person, a really good product coach, uh, here's a plug for, for Andrew Tokley. Uh, you should totally go and reach out to him. Uh, but he pulled me into a, a company here in Wellington doing something I'd never even thought I could have any part in, you know, um, HI, for those of you who don't know, was a VR, AR company. It still exists out of LA. Uh, I should say uh, it, these companies sometimes still exist, um, even if they've gone down a different path. Uh, and I got pulled into here in Wellington and our core technology was, was synchronized video cameras that recorded on a green, green screen stage and allowed us to create volumetric video uh, that was uh, video, high definition video quality of, of assets that are on stage. You know, we worked with people like Buzz Aldrin, uh, MMA, MMA fighters. We had, uh, you know, the stunt double for Spider-Man come in at some point to do tricks on stage. It was a great, interesting, fun project. Um, but it was also highly uh, uh, 
highly technical in its nature. It was very hardware orientated. It was uh, it was uh, wiring up of these cameras. So so this company is kind of also breaking my previous statement. This was built on IP. This was built on a, a sense of intellectual property that needed some specialists. Uh, but the one thing is we we had specialists who were out of the via like the um, the VFX world. So they worked at Weta. They'd been in highly intense organizations before uh, that were very much project driven. So a lot of our specialty, specialism came from uh, pulling people from um, uh, uh, Wetter, as I said, and other, uh, other BFX companies. Uh, and, and in those worlds, you're really driving towards the next uh, film release, right? Like, and you've only got so many, so many hours to do it in. You've really got to drive, uh, drive it. Um, but also, uh, they're highly driven people. If you've met anybody who's in uh, in uh, visual effects or in in, in vision research, uh, it's very much research driven. It's very much focused. Um, and then to try and put on top of that, we tried to put on product people. You know, like product engineering was really what I tried to drive into 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 AI. It's like, great, we've got this technology now. How do we sell it? You know, what's the product at the end of here? What what do we actually want to create out of the end of this? Uh, and I was pulled in as a VP of engineering, so I was leading the entire engineering team. This was twenty something engineers uh, around uh, uh, C uh, Seattle, LA. Wellington. It was a very, very dispersed team. Uh, it was very, very interesting to see those dynamics of having three specific offices that people were coming into very early stage in a, in a business where we didn't necessarily have a strong sense of where this product was going to go. This was this is very early stage uh, exploratory technology. Uh, even now, you know, nobody's walking around with uh, VR headsets on uh, or holding up in their phones constantly to try and do uh, augmented reality. It's still trying to find what that thing is. And, you know, it was really interesting technology and really great uh, uh, science here. But we, during my time, we were still struggling to find out what that, that niche was. What was the product? What were we actually going to sell? Again, that struggle for product market fit. Um, so we spent a lot of money because it was an expensive uh, thing to set up one of those one of the stages would be about a million dollars just to set up on its own um, and struggled for a few years to try and find what this product was but through that it was uh, uh, these two different types of engineers and uh, I don't want to paint with a broad brush but it was really interesting to watch uh, uh, visual engineers so visual research people with product engineers and how they approach problems so very, very differently. Uh, and also how one team, you know, like my product engineering team, were very used to uh, fast feedback, high feedback loops, you know, agile processes uh, where they would make mistakes very, very often and get lots of feedback on those mistakes and learn from those mistakes and move to the next stage. Uh, research is the same, you, you know, you, you, you set a hypothesis and you try and prove it. Um, but you don't necessarily do that in quite such the a rapid release manner. You know, you don't give it to the users. You don't actually uh, show the end user what your research has led you, how much research you've done to led you to the to the end goal. Uh, and working those two teams together, it was really clear to me that they they weren't working well together because they didn't understand each other and they didn't give each other uh, a huge amount of psychological safety to 
to really call each other out or even call us out uh, at management. And the one thing that probably led to us having to make a correction uh, at, at AI where, uh, you know, my final act at AI was to let a whole bunch of engineers go and myself at the same time. Uh, and that's, that's an awful process to have to go through of a restructure. Um, but the reason why was because I suspect nobody had that psychological safety to actually talk to us and tell us what was going wrong. Uh, whereas previous companies I've looked back on and I'm like, yeah, I would even sit down with Rod occasionally and say, hey, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be going in this other direction uh, at zero. And I, you know, I've taken feedback at hoist from my the early employees of, you know, hey, why should we, why are we building this? Shouldn't we go over here and build this uh, instead? Um, that was never really apparent at AI that we could have that thing. And it was really interesting how quickly psychological safety is, is broken down by uh, by behaviors of, of managers and leaders and teams around you, uh, you know, we're driven trying to get to a, to a, 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 a product market fit or even a product properly for, for AI. Uh, and we were driving forward and we were maybe not uh, creating a space that allowed that feedback to be heard. Um, so, so for me, this is like one of the core failure modes is if you create such a driven environment, but not a safe environment, then you don't really hear the signals on the ground that will allow you to make correction much, much earlier. And as I've said, you know, all of the struggles of startups are really to, uh, to find that product market fit, find out who those first customers are, find out whether it's actually going to drive uh, uh, growth from here. Uh, and you need to be taking feedback from everywhere. And a whole bunch of golden feedback is from the team that you're hiring uh, and the team that you've got on the ground. So from there, I took a little bit of a sabbatical, went down the South Island, uh, actually toured the South Island for the first time, um, and uh, realized that one of the things that I'd, I'd not had great experiences with was these distributed offices that were all over the place. Um, you know, uh, Zero had uh, Wellington, Auckland, uh, Canberra, uh, Seattle, London by the time I finished. And there were engineers in all of those different areas who didn't necessarily talk well enough. <laughs> Communication was really bad. Hey, this was the days before Slack as well. Um, uh, so, you know, there were, there, were, there were breakdowns in comms, breakdowns in things. Uh, and I, you know, I'd, I'd fallen in with the, the founders of Zapier back in the days when we were setting up Hoist. We were about the same age of, of company when we were setting up. And we were talking about very similar concepts in terms of uh, integrations between products. Um, so I reached out to the founders of, Zero, uh, of Zapier and said, hey, I'm looking for a role. Have you got anything that might interest me? And they pulled me in as an engineering manager to work uh, alongside them uh, for, for a little while. Um, I ended up at Zapier for a year. And really, my focus was how do you build a really good uh, remote culture? You know, I really wanted to understand how we broke down these barriers of people being else everywhere else. And uh, Zapier was a really amazing, interesting culture for me. It was uh, a team of around about 150 people. Nobody worked from any particular office. Uh, for those of you who don't know Zapier, they've been remote first pretty much from day one. I think they had three months in Y Combinator back at the beginning of the company, and that was the only time the founders have ever been in the same office at the same time. Um, from there, like they've always hired remote people. They've always set people up to work remotely. And this is, you know, 2018, well before the pandemic, well before people actually understood that remote working was going to be a thing. Um, this was, uh, but working at Zapier was, was eye-opening. There was something beautiful about hiring people 
that were Im immediately going to be remote from leadership, from, uh, from their managers, from the people around them. Because the one thing you suddenly realize is you have to hire everybody based on whether you trust them or not. At a simple level, if you're in a remote company, and to be honest, if you're in any company, this should be a rule. If you can't trust somebody 100% when you, the moment you hire them, why are you hiring them? Is my first question. It's like, why on earth would you hire somebody who you have some doubt over or won't give autonomy to because you're not quite sure they're going to make the right decision on the ground? You know. Um, so Zapier really taught me that that uh, you know I, I would literally uh, I had a team member in Africa. I had a team members across all of the states of America. I had a team member in in uh, in Australia. I would never be able to really catch up with all of them at the same time, apart from the one time a year when we when we all got in the same room. But we built this massive trust uh, uh, based team where everybody trusted that everybody else was getting on with the day. Um, and we've all got kind of used to this now a little bit uh, as we've all gone to uh, to pandemic style working. Um, but I do like to say that, you know, working remotely in a pandemic is certainly not the same as working remotely. Um, you know, uh, there's still that overall anxiety that, that doesn't actually exist because of uh, remote working. It just exists because there's this global thing going on at the same time. Um, but working remotely for me uh, taught me a whole bunch of skills around, uh, you know, how do we do really good written communication as as leaders, as people who set up teams, hire teams, manage teams, grow teams, how do you create an environment where your decisions are done uh, thoughtfully, in the open, where people can read them, can understand them, can trust them? Um, so really, you know, um, writing a lot of uh, thoughtful posts, taking time over decisions, making sure that people are included in decisions is a core part of maintaining uh, and building trust in a team. Uh, and uh, I should be clear, this, this talk isn't a, isn't a coaching talk. It's not like, hey, use this mechanic. Um, there are plenty of people who can teach you how to build trust in teams. But the first thing is, is when you're hiring and growing the team, make sure the people you're hiring, you trust. Like part of the interview question that you should be asking yourself is, will I let them do whatever they want because I trust that they'll do the right thing? Because you can't really see what everybody's doing. And even if you're in an office, you are kidding yourself if you think you know what everybody is working on every minute of the day. Um, well, you might be in that kind of office, uh, in which case I really don't want to work for, me, for you. Um, so let me know if you're that kind of person, because you're probably not somebody I want to work for. Um, but really, it's also not the way that most people want to work nowadays either. Uh, I think we create really good, high-performing engineering teams, technical teams, companies by empowering trust and autonomy and decision-making on the ground because the cost of a decision made at the coalface right at the moment when somebody's actually seeing the problem, if they can make a decision right there and then and it's going to be the right decision because they've got all the context and all the trust, man, you're going to save yourself a whole bunch of time. Uh, and the one thing as startups, the one thing as early companies you ha don't have is time. None of us have any time, right? We, we might... We, we raise money or we, you know, we have capital. That, that capital is all just to create time, is to give us a little bit more time in order to get to the point where we're actually a business. And, you know, or, or otherwise we would call ourselves a business and not a startup. Um, 
so you know we're, we're all maximizing to find that product market fit and that takes time so really the one thing you want to do is have a team that you trust to make good decisions on the ground uh, and this uh, really is the one question that people ask me when you know uh, uh, at, when I'm going is like what do I what do I look for when I'm hiring engineers and honestly it's looking for values and for trust oh uh, getting getting towards the end of my uh, my my path through lots and lots of startups um, so I came out of Zapier, got pulled in by uh, a good, good guy called Mike Lovegrove into a company called Ginny. Uh, we were trying to transform the insurance industry uh, and uh, very, very uh, doggedly uh, enterprise-y style industry, uh, very risk averse by nature, because that's what they do in, uh, in insurance, uh, is to really, uh, uh, it was a hard nut to crack, let's put it that way. Um, but the one thing that we had is, uh, is lots and lots of opportunities, right? We, we were going everywhere. We were trying to work out what, what our product market fit was, where we should focus. Um, and this is the one thing it's like, um, is focus is great, right? Like we really need to focus as startups, right? Solve one problem, solve one problem well. Don't try and solve 50 problems and do them badly because you'll never work out which one is the one that's actually gonna take you further. Um, I, I'm a strong believer in focus being the, 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 the one thing that gets startups through to the next stage is you focus on a problem, you've gone deep on that problem and you know what that focus is. Obviously that focus can shift, you know, but only ever do one thing at a time. <laughs> Never try and do 50 million things at a time. Um, a good CEO once said, you know, the job of a CEO is to pick the door, but not to close all the others. So, you know, you go through the door, don't get me wrong, there are other opportunities, don't close them off, but don't don't even focus on them right now. Um, but for me, hiring a team uh, into Journey, and I hired a few people to, to work alongside us, it was really around focusing on the industry, really focusing on insurance, really focusing on a solution and a problem that we were trying to solve. And you know, we worked with IAG for, for a good year or so before, before we, we came to the end of, uh, of what we could do at Journey. Um, and the, the key of focus is that it gave us a really good story to hire new people in, right? Like I was able to tell everybody why we're here, what we're doing, what the outcome should be. And people were bought into that vision, mission and drive. So, you know, once you've got that, you can sell autonomy on top of that. And then, you know, maybe a, a, a good enough salary that people will, will take a hit on their current salary, but want to come to a startup because you've got that vision, mission and drive. The one thing that I made a mistake on, on Jenny, and I think, I'd hope Mike would, would agree we made a mistake on is probably losing the focus on measuring whether we were making forward progress with that focus, right? So, you know, you can focus on a problem, but are you actually going forward and solving that, that, that problem? Um, but also, you know, what's the risk, you know, what's the assumptions that you've made back here uh, that, that aren't necessarily true yet. Um, so we, we uh, what I would say is like, while you're building the team, keep them focused, keep them understanding the focus, but really keep trying to measure whether you're making forward progress as a team uh, and getting to the point where you, where, where the product market fit will come. Um, oh, nearly there, because this is me. This is me now, right? So nowadays uh, I am uh, Senior Vice President of Technology, as I said, uh, which actually just means CTO of uh, Timely. Uh, Timely, we're in uh, the business of um, selling uh, uh, 
business of record, sorry, a system of record for uh, hairdressers and salons so that they can uh, take bookings, make appointments, take payments, those kind of things. We're a team of 140 people uh, from the UK, Australia, uh, and New Zealand. And we're now part of a company called Evercommerce, which is US-based, um, which is super interesting, you know, for anybody who's not been through an acquisition, uh, that's an interesting process to go through. You lose autonomy over certain things and you gain uh, a lot of security and other things. Uh, but hiring is also uh, still an interesting uh, proposition, right? So, um, you know, the the the, the problem of growing teams and the problem of making sure that you've got a great place to work doesn't stop just because you've hit an exit moment or you've hit the next phase. Um, you know, we're still we're still hiring roles, we're still growing a company. Um, this is still a challenge, ongoing challenge of creating a really core autonomous team that allows decisions to be made on the ground really, really simply and easily within the context of a wider group. Um, you know, so part of my challenge now is to understand the wider group uh, mentality and what story they're going on so that I can put it through the lens of what it means to work at Timely, uh, encourage people who are still highly trusted, highly motivated by the vision, mission and, and drive uh, to, to work for us, uh, and then set it out to them what's, what's in it for them. I'm also a, a mentor with uh, with Startmate, which is uh, an accelerator, uh, nominally out of uh, out of Melbourne. Although we're kind of take uh, New Zealand and Australia early stage companies uh, and surround them with people uh, better than myself uh, to really give advice and help uh, solve problems uh, through. Uh, through various different uh, guises. And I just saw Casey, uh, who's uh, one of the teams, uh, one of the companies I've mentored recently. Uh, uh, so really helping them not give a different perspective on their, their problems at early stage startup uh, life. Um, and really kind of, there's a few things that, uh, you know, bringing back to my title, uh, you know, we, we in New Zealand are very, very immature at management, right? Like we really don't do it very well. We've never done it very well. Certainly in 2007, nobody knew what management was. Well, obviously people did know what management was, but really uh, when you're starting a tech company or when you're starting a startup, you're like, hey, we will never ever need managers. We don't need managers, we're all awesome. Uh, my, my advice to everybody is get really clean and clear on what management is and isn't. And the one thing that management isn't is telling people what to do, right? Like that's in no way what management should be or is. Uh, it's about managing the work that's available to do, right? Like it's about creating an environment that people can do great work. Uh, and then suddenly you find you're a manager and then your job is no longer to do the work. Your job is to keep that process going, to keep the environment that people can do great work. Um, uh, Michael Lopp is a great engineering leader, uh, and he he sums this up really, really well in one of his books, uh, and it pretty much says that. So I, I, I butchered what I was trying to say because I wanted to kind of quote him, which is the role of a manager is to not do great work, but to create an environment that great work happens. Um, and I think the one thing that I would love to inspire startup people to do is to have confidence that they don't need to know what's going on with every single person on every single minute of the day. This, this need to control everything is uh, against the purpose that we want to create when we're in small companies. Uh, you, as a startup person, probably never wanted to be micromanaged, never wanted to be uh, told what to do. Instead, hire people that you trust, give them a huge amount of context, give them really good vision, mission and drive, and the rest will follow. 
uh, as long as you're focused on solving a problem for somebody in the market. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to go through and give you a little bit of background. Um, hopefully that was not boring. I'm not going to say interesting, but hopefully not boring. Uh, I'll stop sharing my screen. Yeah, awesome. Um, that, that was such a yeah. great presentation. Um, thanks so much. That's so much good insight. And I'm sure a lot of um, questions um, coming through as well. So um, to kick off um, first question, um, uh, what's the optimum number of people to report to you and size of teams, et cetera, from Richard? Yeah, totally. Uh, and thinking has evolved over time uh, in my head, right? Like, and then there's phases you go through as, as a startup, as a team, as a tech team. Um, for me, if you're a full-time manager, like literally your job is to manage people and not to be on the tools, not not writing code. Uh, I call you know, in, in, I call these specifically engineering managers in engineering parlance. If you're a if you're a director or if you're um, if you're a, an executive, uh, the maximum number of reports I would ever give somebody is about eight. Um, you know, once you're a full-time management the interrupt cost of being able to solve problems and create an environment and to be focused on the things you should be doing as a manager is around about eight. Um, you can stretch to 10 if you're a really experienced manager and, uh, and that's okay. However, if you wanna be on the tools, which is really what you wanna do when you're an early stage startup is, you know, if you're a CTO or you're still writing code, if you're, you know, if you're the chief marketing officer, you're still probably writing copy, writing campaigns, getting them out, uh, then really your, your maximum is about three, you know, to really be able to, to, to have enough time to do the do as well as get interrupted and give them really good guidance and feedback. You've got to make, uh, you've, you've got to make compromises. You're always going to because there's a limited amount of money and you've got to get enough people on the ground and you've got to give them uh, forward progress. There's a huge amount of, um, of leeway you can get by having a really core, constructive, open uh, culture where the management burden, burden can be shared a little bit. Most people who come into a company uh, and the value they'll get from managers is, hey, what do I do to improve my experience of working here? Hey, how do I grow as a, an individual? You know, what kind of challenges should I get involved in? And then from a manager point of view, the best things to get involved in is, hey, you know, you two need to go and talk together and solve this problem this way. Hey, here's the direction we're going and the problem we're, we're needing to solve. And here's why, and here's how we know it's gonna be valuable. Uh, it's really a, a manager's job to set lots of context. Like it, that's really the only job of a manager is to set high, high context. Um, if you want one tool for, for management uh, and getting better at management, get a coach. Like, honestly, get a coach. Uh, it's, it's, especially if you're an executive or in, in, in senior roles, um, there are plenty of really good coaches uh, in New Zealand, uh, in Australia and in America. Um, uh, go out, reach out, find somebody who, who you gel with a little bit. But honestly, coaching was the most important thing for me. I had a year and a half of, of a highly, highly effective uh, executive coach. It taught me all of my problems. <laughs> it's kind of like having a therapist, um, but, you know, very much focused on, on work. Although, you know, sometimes the, the person you bring to work is very much affected by what you do outside of work and how you approach problems. Uh, as a manager, you've got to be hugely self-aware 
And the best way to do that is to get somebody who can call you on those things. Uh, and to me, coaching, uh, and I've, you know, I've coached individuals, I coach executives around the place. Uh, and in no way am I plugging my own skills. I'm, you know, I'm not looking for work. Um, uh, but, you know, that kind of thing is, is just a really valuable way to get a sounding board because you're not going to find it in your business because there's always, there's always a reason you can't be open with everybody in your business. Um, yeah sorry I, I diverted the whole question into something else so sorry oh, that's, that's so much um, more good insight and that is really good advice yes yeah, so to get a coach um a question from gary um hi owen could you elaborate a little on the backgrounds of the generalist hire you suggested yeah so um most of us are building SaaS products nowadays right like most technology businesses are are in SaaS. they you know there's very few people delivering software to an end user, um, unless you're in deep tech, right? So, so this is where my my hey, your mileage might vary sticker kind of kind of comes out. You know, if your core IP is is machine learning, like literally, hey, I've written an amazing model and algorithm that that is there, then you probably don't need a generalist. You need that specialist who's working on that core IP until it's until it's good enough, right? Like, but actually. Uh, the IP is very rarely what the people buy. It's the productized IP, right? Like it's the it's the packaging around it. It's the, the IP is really, really important, but you really need to be able to put it to market in a way that makes sense for people or is usable for people. Uh, and in that case, uh, for me, uh, a generalist is somebody who knows enough around about uh, all of the, the core technologies to get a web application out and running. So usually they'll know a backend, a front-end technology, and they'll know enough about databases to run something in. Then they'll know really how to debug something. So they've, they've built a web app, they've put it out, and that's kind of enough skills for somebody to be called a generalist, right? Like if they haven't only focused on database performance, or they call themselves a SQL Server guru, or something like that, you know, um, that's that's not a generalist to me. But somebody who's happy to roam, they might not be really, really good at front-end technology. They might not, you know, they might prefer, like myself, I prefer to be back-end because, you know, honestly, my CSS is, is not the best in the world. Um, but I can do it and I'm happy to do it. And people like myself, you know, I, I would call myself a generalist. Uh, because there's no one technology that I'm going to be better than anybody else at. There's always people who are better than me at most of the technologies that I work in. There aren't as many people who can do all of the technologies all of the time, right? Like I can dive into infrastructure. I'm really keen to learn that stuff, keen to learn backend technologies, keen to learn front-end technologies. You know, I've, I've worked in React, I've worked in Vue and all of those kind of things. Um, so that's what I mean by a generalist. It doesn't really matter about the background. It really matters around what they're wanting to do, right? Like, it matters that they are happy and they are confident to roam around the application because they're going to have to. Right? They're going to have to go into all of these different things. Cool. Awesome. Um, question here from Jim. Um, thanks, Owen. This was awesome. Um, could you comment more on the hiring process and people that you decided not to onboard? You mentioned the trust factor, but perhaps you um, can embellish on other aspects to decide against an in individual. This is challenging for me. Thanks from Jim. Yeah, totally. Uh, hey Jim, thanks for that. Thanks for the question. Um, so hiring process for me, uh, I, I have a pretty set set hiring process nowadays that I that I tend to follow most of the time. So first of all, uh, I have a team now, so so it, it's it's organised for it for bringing somebody into an existing team. When it went when it was a early stage startup. 
my goal was, uh, first of all, I would have a catch up with them. I would talk to them and I would go, what are the, what's, what's the, uh, what's the rubric? So what are, what are the, what's the decision I want to make here? And I, I would write that down beforehand. So, you know, I want somebody who has this skill and that skill or has that experience, right? I want somebody who has worked in a high pressure, uncertain situation before, you know, like startups are highly uncertain, highly un, uh, unstable. Uh, there's no confidence that you're going to be around in three years time. But the, but the flip side of that is I want somebody who's incredibly driven to be autonomous, to make decisions, to have some seniority uh, and to uh, and to really build teams around them, right? Like that's that's the kind of people you want to hire at early stage startups. Um, so for me, now I do one call, a screening call at the beginning and I talk around, you know, what's my vision, mission and drive and then talk to them about what's their motivation. Uh, for early stage startups, it would be very, very simple. It's like, here's the vision and mission of the company. Here's kind of our runway. You know, I would be very, very blank and open and honest and say, this is what it's looking like. We've got like, you know, 12 months of salary in the bank. We can guarantee that much, but that's about it. Uh, we're, we're going in all these different directions, but on the plus side, here's all the things I can offer you. And making sure that they're, they're aligned to that. Uh, the worst thing about uh, bad interviews is if you ever missell the opportunity or you're like hey this is an amazing rocket ship and really you've got one person on the ground and three customers and you know it's not rocket ship yet it could be totally sell what it could be but don't lie and say it is one of it if what it isn't yet um because the reason why we do that is because we're uncomfortable <laughs> with the reality of where we're at so own the reality know where you're at know what you're doing uh, and hire people who are who are motivated by that uh, the reason why you'd say no is because uh, they are uncomfortable with, uh, with uncomfortableness. They're uncomfortable with you at a simple level, you know, like you don't know what they're saying. Like they, they might, they might give the right answers, but I'm, I'm going to sound like, you know, it when you see it, you know, um, but sometimes through the communication of an interview, you're like, I'm not really sure I understood what he was trying to say, or they were trying to say, I should say, sorry. Um, I'm not really sure where they were taking this story or anything else. Um, and that's a perfectly valid reason to say no, right? Like if you've got any doubts, say no, because you're not going to let them be successful, right? Um, the, the second side is, you know, do you have to do a technical test or anything like that? Um, for, if I'm focused on engineering, we always talk about, you know, do you do a coding test or do you not? My, my blanket advice is to know that you don't do a technical coding test. You don't get them to write a new solution. But I have found a really useful... Uh, take-home test which is you know a very very simple solution usually hey this is a technology you've worked in and i've done all the work but just add a function into it right uh, something that most people shouldn't struggle with too much it's not about testing whether they know the code or not and then get them to present the work they did back to you so the actual interview is not the code they did but how do they communicate about the code which then gives you another moment to go hey can i communicate with this person can we talk can we will will they take my feedback right will they understand what i'm saying or will they just close down and get defensive uh, and those kind of things which is always a good moment if you get everybody getting closing down and getting defensive it's like oh am i the problem <laughs> um which is sometimes true uh, let's put it that way um uh the other side of it is be open to your own biases and your own you know like, sorry not be open to them be mindful of them right like uh, this is the one problem we had at, at 
Zero is myself and Tokes. We kind of came from the same backgrounds to the point where we even like we worked in the ski resorts, both of us at one point. Um, you know, that's just uh, bizarre that we have that that closer connection. Um, but it did mean did mean that we hired a lot of people who had very similar backgrounds, had a very narrow scope of what com what being good in computing meant. Uh, you know, like hey, you should really have a hobby and of computers. Like, what have you built in your free time? That kind of stupid idea of that makes somebody really good. Um, nowadays, I I try and bet all of my questions with a trusted third party. Uh, if I don't have somebody in my company who can help me vet them, then I'll go outside and find some uh, more diversity to actually go, hey, is this a valid question? Can I ask this? Is this actually what I should be checking on? And then they can they can check what you're actually trying to find out from those questions. But if you start with that rubric, what do I want to know? What will make a good candidate? What will make somebody work well here? Then you can work out the questions that you want to ask to expose that. And then write them all down, write down the answers and refer back to the rubric and go, hey, did I find out enough here? If, if by the end of it, you've gone, no, actually, I'm not sure. The answer is no, sorry, because you're not going to make them successful. It's not that they're not great. It's not that they couldn't be successful. It's just that you're not going to create an environment that you trust them to be successful because you've already got doubts. Um, yeah. Um, and just a somewhat similar question um, on the trust front. front um, how do you apply this to more junior team members, um, even without even with um, great context, they can't necessarily make great decisions or work highly autonomously from day one. Yeah, so uh, junior uh, is is always interesting. It's always hard uh, to give a one answer fits all for how do you bring juniors on board? How do you create a team of juniors? Um, there's a few things here, right? Like they need support. Like if you're first in your career, you need support. So you've got to understand that having a team with juniors on uh, can be hugely successful, but it does take time and it does take effort and it does take energy from a mentor. So somebody sitting around that is sitting in on their questions, you know, like, hey, making sure they've got somebody instantly that they can ask questions and there's no barrier. It probably can't be an executive. Like if they're off doing other calls, it feels like there's this massive barrier. And there was, there was moments where that would break down at hoist because I had two juniors and then myself, you know, I tried to be focused and go, actually, for like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm in the office with you, sitting with you and helping you, or I, we're on remote calls together. At Zapier, I pulled in two juniors and they literally would, would be on a, a Zoom call with me for a few hours, not because I wanted to see what they were doing, but because I could hear them and then they'd go, hey, Owen, we've got a question about X. And I could just jump in and go, oh, okay, cool. This is this is why we're going in this direction. This is why you build it that way. These, these, are, these are the things. And so you do need to have some way of answering those questions. Um, but the other side is like create an environment where it's okay to fail and it's okay to actually make mistakes. Like even startups, it's okay to produce code that doesn't work or doesn't solve the problem because you'll learn something through it. You're like, oh, that's a failure case we didn't think about. Oh, okay, cool. It's actually quite useful to have almost a chaos monkey in the in a junior coder like breaking stuff by accident. Um, so the other side is, you know, like have systems and processes that allow you to fail and roll back very, very quickly. So, you know, uh, this is this is a core man mantra of DevOps. And if you read Accelerate, this is what, you know, drives high performing cultures is how quickly you can release code to production. How quickly can you uh, can you recover from failure? You know, um, 
and you know really focusing on those systems and processes and getting those into place so that you've got a safety net and then doesn't really matter if a junior comes in makes a mistake pushes it to production and something breaks it's like oh okay cool you learned not to do that again let's pull that back um the 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 actual big reason that they would make mistakes is because they don't have the context of why they're working on the thing that they're working on that's usually the biggest failure mode is like oh you built the wrong thing not that you built it wrong but you built the wrong thing because to be honest if you build the right thing in, in a wrong way it's still fine for a startup it's like hey we'll come back and rebuild that later if it's if it's valuable if we find out actually that people don't use it we'll put some investment and we'll we'll, we'll put some time into it but usually it's they're building the wrong thing and that's usually because they don't know why they're building the thing um, yeah, in my experience, obviously. Cool. Um, question from Chris. Um, what ex extra considerations do you need to make building a remote team where everyone is based in the same country compared to building a global remote team? Yeah, so actually you probably need less considerations building a remote team that's in one country. <laughs> um, time zones are my worst enemy and my worst nightmare. Uh, the one thing I found really hard at Zapier was my day would start at like 6 a.m., uh, to catch up with this person in Africa. And it would actually close out at 2 p.m., you know, like most of my team had gone off or were, were fine and they didn't need me or I didn't need to do any more work. So it was it was fine in terms of how many hours, but uh, I live in Upper Hutt, which is, you know, a suburb outside of Wellington. And uh, back in those days, there really wasn't anywhere to go and work uh, apart from in Wellington. And you couldn't get into a co-working space before nine o'clock because, you know, that's a normal start time or something. So it became very isolating from, from community around us. Uh, I think to me, it's uh, it's very much around how do you build community within, within the remote team? And I should be really clear, there is no, there is no substitute for face-to-face. -face. Like Zapier, we used to get people together once a year. Um, here at Timely, we get people together twice a year, once a year for the whole company and then and then another time for, for just our engineering team uh, and then quarterly for their teams. Because, uh, you know, there's recently been a study that face-to-face -face is really good for generating ideas and then remote is really good for selecting which ideas was actually the good one. Um, you know, that those creative modes are very, very different. Um, and also for for collective buy-in to a vision and mission and, and, and goal, you kind of need to be together and discuss these things. So you know the edge cases and the things that people are struggling with um, that won't come up on remote. But then when you're building remote, uh, if, you, if you're building remote in one location and you have an opportunity to go, or you think it's gonna go global, be mindful of that. Like at some point, there's gonna be people who are waking up uh, and to a wall of Slack text. You know, like this is, your, your center of gravity is in this location hey, how's that person over there going to feel? Uh, and be think mindful of things like um, decision-making that happens synchronously is really a bad thing when you're when you're trying to build a good remote culture. Don't get me wrong, you can make really small decisions synchronously, but if you want buy-in from people who are elsewhere, you need, to, you need to work on your asynchronous muscles. So those are things like putting decision matrices together in a document, say, hey, We've got a decision that comes to this level this is how we're going to approach it and it goes into a document it gets proposed by one person they they leave it up for a day for anybody to comment and then you know then you can wrap it up be wary of doing that in slack because you get the first mover advantage from the first person who comments because they'll control the entire conversation afterwards there's various muscles there that you just want to get used to 
to exercising and one of them is is asynchronous communication which is you know lean on lean on documentation lean on documents lean on comments within, within documentation allowing people to edit uh, and then for slack to be just the the synchronous stuff that um so that people don't have that anxiety level of waking up to a wall of notifications um, and get people really used to hitting shift and enter which you know clears notifications mark everything as red when you wake up uh, and then get into your day uh, and just make that part of your culture so that then everybody knows oh, I've, I've messaged you outside of your hours you're not going to read that are you i'll send it to you again when you're actually awake and those kind of things Cool. Um, and we've just got time for just one more question. Um, so a question here from Matt. Um, what do you think is a good relationship slash responsibility split between the technical lead and product manager roles? Yeah, this is this is um, this is hard to to get like, hey, this is definitely the the split that you should have. The one thing I will say is there should be somebody who's responsible for either, right? Like uh, putting it in the the same person. I've seen it work occasionally well. Uh, you know, head of product and technology the one thing that that breaks is the trust in the decision right so so product and technology should be a, a continuum you know like they're, they're both competing against each other for people's time and you've only got so much time so you need to pick the thing that's most important if you have the the what that in the one role in one person who's head of product and one person and technology nobody trusts that they're balancing that correctly even if they are they'll always create a story that says hey product always wins uh, usually it's product always wins uh, and to the detriment of technology and te look at all this technical debt uh, the reality is you know you want to uh, make sure that there's somebody who's owning the the responsibility for either of those so that they can go and complain to the person who's their responsibility and say hey we're not taking care of technical debt and hopefully that person can give a really good response that says oh actually we got in a room uh, and we decided that the outcome of of paying that bit of technical debt down is is high but actually we want to push it beyond this this feature because of xyz you know like we're going to market we're trying to do product market fit that's more important right now um, and people will understand that and people will trust that that conversation is going on the trouble is if the conversation is happening between your two ears in your head uh, nobody knows it's happening and nobody trusts that it's happening. Um, so that's probably not a direct answer to the question, but that's about the most detail I can probably give you that would be useful. <laughs> no, no, that was really cool. Cool. Um, now I'm just conscious we do need to um, wrap up as everyone has, has things to get on to. Um, but thanks everyone for the questions. Um, and yeah, honestly, a big massive thanks, um, Owen, for, for coming on and, and sharing so much great insight. Um, I know there are a lot of key takeaways in there. And we um, we have recorded this webinar, which will go up on um, Territory Three um, YouTube, LinkedIn, um, and actually um, Spotify does videos now. So um, not just the sound, but actually actually the video on Spotify now, which is great. Yeah. I know, cool. Um, um, but yeah, honestly, yeah, thanks so much. Um, and also just um, a quick uh, shout out to um, our sponsors for helping to make this happen: um, NZ Trade and Enterprise, BNZ, AWS, Avanda Management, Jasmine Investments, and K1W1. Um, if anyone um, has anything else um, to chat to Owen about, you can reach out on LinkedIn, I believe. Totally. So I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Buildmaster. Uh, or just email me. Uh, Owen at uh, tinyvine.com is me. So yeah, more than welcome to. Amazing. Cool. Well, otherwise, um, thank you everyone for tuning in. Um, we'll be live from 
San Francisco in about a week and a half is the next webinar, which is super exciting. Um, and Austin as well, um, finally getting, you know, getting out into the world, into the States. Um, so do keep an eye on our LinkedIn for some updates about that. Um, but we'll let everyone go now. So thank you to Owen. Thanks, thank everybody. Thank you. Yeah.